you know, my mom struggled with addiction her whole life, so I have memories of her, and she had kind of fallen into prostitution and those things. And I remember feeling abandonment, uh, guilt, and shame. That led me into, you know, drinking, drugging, all these things. I was trying to fill that that void, that emptiness with stuff. I was 15 when I dropped out in the ninth grade. That led me into, you know, juvenile detention facilities, lots of felonies. I had a felony sales and possession when I was 16 years old. That that just set me on this whole trajectory in life. And I'm lucky really, Jacob, to even be alive, honestly. Finally, I, I met my wife now, Jill, and uh, fell in love with her. We prayed this prayer one night in a hotel room in Tampa. Uh, and I said, God, whatever you have to do to stop me, please do that. And so the next day, God sent angels in green suits with handcuffs and answered my prayer. I'm Jacob Burson, the host of the Love Period podcast. This is a show about the stories of leaders, creators, groundbreakers, and pioneers who lead organizations who focus on improving the lives of others. These leaders at some point had to lift up their anchor and step out in faith, step out into the unknown to get them where they are today. On this episode, we're talking to Pastor Michael Beck. Michael pastors two churches in Central Florida. He's a director at United Theological Seminary, an author of several books, and he is a pioneer of several fresh expressions of church. What are fresh expressions? Well, he's going to tell us a little bit more about uh, about that. But to summarize it as quickly as possible, uh, these are forms of church that happen out where the people are in our communities. Churches in tattoo parlors, churches in Mexican restaurants, churches and laundromats. Fresh expressions are gatherings of people around the message of Jesus, growing with each other in faith, in discipleship, and engaging the communities where they are located in service. I just love them. And while all of that is awesome, Michael's going to share with us his journey to what what got him, the path that he took to get him where he is today, a path that's riddled with addiction, gangs, drugs, prison, and most importantly, it's full of grace. So join me in this conversation with my friend, Michael Beck. Hey, everybody. It's Jacob Burson, Love Period Podcast, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Beck. What's up, Mike? How are you, Jacob? Thanks Good, man. Yeah, I was. Uh, so are you are you a doctor that already know this answer? You're, you're not the doctor that puts your signature as doctor in the emails that you share that we've shared back and forth. Right. So do you so you never correct anyone when they address you to say, I'm, I'm Dr. Michael no, Beck. I, I'd rather just be Michael, honestly, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's um in my former career, there was a guy who was a doctor and his email signature had all of his certifications, corporate training certificates. So um, you've got some you got some game. You got to step up your game a little bit. <laughs> a little. Sure. So, all right. So to get things loose, to get that brain matter stretched out, to do some um, static dynamic stretching. We've got some rapid fire questions to get uh, to get things going. So you may have to dig deep into your uh, into your memory bank. All right. So, Michael, what was your first car? My first car was a Honda Civic EX two door with a sunroof. Any speakers, stereo, anything in there that uh, you miss? Yeah, I had some back. This was back in the day of like low riders were cool. So I had some Alpha McLeans on there that poked out. And a kicker 12s in the back with the amplifier. Um, so yeah. Do you ever miss your? <clears throat> you ever miss your windows? Your mirrors not rattling? 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, factory car systems these days are pretty, pretty good, but they are, they are. Sometimes yep. I relive my my young days by putting on some gangster rap. Hey, hey, DJ Magic Mike, Isn't that, that wasn't was, that his name? Yes. Yeah, feel feel the bass. Just yeah. <laughs> just nothing but rattling mirrors. All right. On a scale of one to ten, how cool are you? Oh man, that's not fair. If you ask my kids, I'm a one. Most of the time in my own mind, probably a five. All right, that's fair. That's that's fair to say. Um I think you're a ten. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> I, I think you're a ten too, as far as pastors go, you know. Uh, oh, so, so we're necessarily the coolest people. There we go. It is. It's, it's graded on a curve. You have to consider. Right. You're cool for a for a pastor. There you go. Which yeah. is not you know, <laughs> way out there ahead of yeah, the curve. That makes you back to that five you were talking about. Right. All right. What what is a um what is a book that you find yourself recommending to people most often? Let's say right now because I I know I've seen your in other Zoom meetings I've been in with you I've seen your bookshelf and it's. It's full. So, but right now, what's a book you're recommending to a lot of folks? Um, I think the one that's had the most impact right now is um, Gerald R. Buckles, Refounding the Church. And he just talks about being principled dissenters in a system that uh, is, is really overly structured and suffocates innovation. Yeah. And how you can, um, you know, be a dissenter in that system to bring revolution and change. Yeah, so that kind of speaks to the circles that you're in. Um, you know, all folks give a different answer to that question. Kind of depends. It always it always reflects what circles you're in of which book you're recommending um, the most. Um, so I just wrote that one down. The one I just I just got one in today, like the the questions Jesus asked. Somebody uh, re- somebody commented on my Facebook post about it the other day. So I went on Amazon, and uh, now now it's here. So. That's just another book. It's another book that I'm going to start and probably not finish, but it'll make me look smart. So, <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. If you could spend an afternoon with anybody, um, alive or dead, that can't be Jesus, who would you like to spend that time with? Tupac. Oh, okay. Let's dive into that one. <laughs> yeah. What's that one about? Well, he just was kind of a revolutionary of my day. I, I resonated with him growing up. Um, just how, how he struggled out of the hood and, uh, kind of overcame that through his gift and, and then died way too young. So Mm. I guess I was really shaped by that whole, you know, growing up early nineties. And I just thought, found him to be a fascinating person on the outs. There was this hard exterior. He would talk about guns and shooting at people underneath. He was kind of a poet. Right. Right. Uh, and a gentle person really behind it. Right. Yeah. I think we all kind of miss the storytelling that used to exist in not just rap music, especially, but also country music. There was a, a level of storytelling that's kind of hard to find today, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, this is where we make the shift in the podcast. So on the Love Period podcast, we speak to people who are um, leading organizations or efforts that exist to serve other people. So, Tell us a story or maybe stories about a time in your life where um, you knew that you were called to something else and um, what it took to take that step. Yeah, 
can I get a little bit autobiographical to answer? Yeah, a hundred percent. All right. So I, I had, I, I kind of grew up in these two worlds where it was, uh, my grandparents adopted me and my mother gave me away at birth and she had some substance abuse issues and my biological father is unknown. So on one hand, I was a street kid and I grew up with all these other street kids that were just doing crazy stuff. And um, on the other hand, my grandparents took me to the church every Sunday to worship, to learn, to, to be involved in all that. So it's like these two different worlds kind of. When my grandparents died, I just went fully into that world, drugs, you know, gangs, juvenile detention facilities, dropped out in the ninth grade. So when, I, when Jesus rescued me from the floor of a jail cell and I went back to that little church, I had always experienced the church as a place like it, some of my best memories of my childhood were in the church where I felt cared about and loved and fed and everything else. So uh, I, I hear a lot of experiences people have that have not been real positive with the church. That wasn't my experience. Though early in my ministry when I was a pastor, I realized 90% of the people like me um, and that, that have kind of went the path that I did, they're never going to come to church. So I have to go out and, and find ways to be church with them and sustain this beautiful thing that was so meaningful to me and the people that I serve. So I'm an a ordained elder in a, in a very institutional church. But I had to, for myself, to be faithful to myself. One of the places where I feel the most out of place anywhere in the world is at clergy gatherings. Mm. Um, and uh, I just feel like just a little bit different, maybe. I don't know. But so um, for me, the inherited church is very important. But all that stuff that we do outside of it to connect with people that are never going to come, I feel like that's my calling. But I have to live in this world. Uh, I don't, I have the great, the joy and privilege to live in this world of sustaining something. And my hope is that what we're doing out here is going to actually feed back and bring life back to the church, the kind of church that I grew up in. Right. Um, so part of that story, you talked about how impactful your grandparents were like, just kind of give us an age. When you say you, you had good memories of church, what's kind of a, What's a what's a memory that stands out? Is there something that they did in particular that you kind of took note of that you can maybe reflect on now that they kind of had that impact? Maybe some specific things that they were doing. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> my grandpa died when I was ten, so I didn't I didn't have a lot of time with him. And my grandma died uh, a couple years later. But what I do remember is um, just the way that she prayed for me, the way that she loved me. It was unconditional. I just remember her studying scriptures. She had her little Bible and her upper room devotional. And she would just always let me know that she loved me and she was praying for me, even when I was starting to go out and do all kinds of crazy things. So that just, I never forgot that. And um, the, the other thing that I think that was formative when my grandpa died, uh, I had a pastor, his name was Holland Vaughn. And he, took me under his wing. He started taking me to pastor conferences and stuff, which I thought was boring, but just, you know, he'd load me up in his old green Oldsmobile and we go places. And I, when I look back now, I see that he was trying to, you know, care for me and, and um, be a, be a positive male influence in my life. 
and he, when I was 10, he told me, he said, Michael, you're going to be a pastor one day. Mm. And I thought that was weird. And that was not, I was like 5,000 things I wanted to be when I was, when I grew up and that was not on that list anywhere. Right. So I was like, yeah, no, but thanks for saying that. And then just kind of in church, I remember carrying the flame in, you know, being an acolyte, um, the, 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 the tradition, the ritual. And I just felt like people there were genuine, loving people. So those, those are a couple. So what age were you when that, what was the pastor's name again? Holland Vaughn. So when Pastor Vaughn was kind of, when he was mentoring you, how old were you at that time? So my grandpa died when I was 10, uh, probably about 12 and a little before that. So maybe eight to 12 years old. All right. So here's kind of where that timeline gap, I think people could get a little um, eight to 12. So from 12 to today, you lived, you were good to go. All, Todd, you went straight to student ministry. You went straight to seminary and you've been leading ever since. No. Right. <clears throat> no. No. Um, I and dropped I, out in the ninth grade. Yeah, and I think that's where, and I'll, uh, as you continue to tell that story, I think that's where a lot of times where, where we lose context with all types of pastors is we just visualize somebody who grew up, they had it all together. Um, their parents raised them up in a, in a typical Christian home, and they went to seminary, they became student pastor, and that's just the path. So I need, I need people to hear your story. Okay. And the reason I want to share that is the significance of that is he was planting seeds that when I went through all what I'm about to share with you, I knew where to go. And I had a, a sense of that place as a place where I could, you know, find God and where there's love and all that. So when I was, um, you know, my mom kind of, I said that she struggled with addiction her whole life. So I have memories of her, you know, um, in our city where we grew up. Um, and she had kind of fallen into prostitution and those things. And so I remember feeling abandonment, uh, guilt and shame. You know, I love what Brene Brown says about, you know, guilt is something I, I did a bad thing and I carry that, but shame is about, I'm a bad person or I'm, I'm not a person who's worthy. Like nobody wanted me. So, you know, I just ended up being kind of kicked around. And so I carried that identity uh, and not enoughness, basically. So that led me into, you know, drinking, drugging, sleeping around, all these things. I was trying to fill that, that void, that emptiness with stuff. And all of my friends that I grew up with, um, they were into drugs and alcohol and gangs and all these things. So I was 15 when I dropped out in the ninth grade. Uh, I always made good grades up to that point. I was a good student. Uh, I like to learn, but um, I just said, you know, it's either stay home and sell some drugs and make some money and sleep around with some girls or go to school. So I chose uh, the, the, the former. And uh, that led me into, you know, juvenile detention facilities, lots of felonies. I had a felony sales and possession when I was 16 years old. Um, and so I had to go to juvie and I had to go to what was called um, the Silver River Marine Institute, which is a it's a program for incarcerated juvenile felons. But the gift of that program, we we call it a gladiator school. 
but it was in that program that I got my uh, GED. So I, at least I had the equivalent of a, of a high school diploma. But um, so that, that just set me on this whole trajectory in life. And I'm lucky really, Jacob, to even be alive, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, think of, I think of moments we there was, you know, gun violence things that happened. I had friends that died, um, just really hard things. Um, and I survived all that. And actually all my friends that I grew up with, there's only one of them today that's actually free and a citizen. The rest are either dead or OD'd, or gang violence, or are in prison for the rest of their life. Mm. So in my final incarceration, and I, I took some, so I was always been an entrepreneur, like I sold drugs. So I would get these large quantities of drugs, cocaine, marijuana, distribute that. And I had all my buddies kind of uh, uh, working for me. And I would have them distributing. And, and I'm, I bought my first house when I was a teenager, and a, you know, vehicles and all that stuff. And it was the gangster rap era, so I'm running around with gold chains and a gold grill in my mouth and all this craziness, just really trying to be some projection of who I really wasn't at all. So it was all just a facade, really. But um, I had some several children during that, got married, and then I started my first legitimate uh, like legal corporation um, when I was 18 and started a, a couple little businesses, basically to try to clean up money that that was happening and uh, I ran one of those it was a it was a tree service it started out with just a couple guys that I knew and some chainsaws and some trucks and did that for 11 years and uh, we became a a corporation that we did all the land clearing for several subdivisions so we would come in and do what's called site prep prepare the pad for people to come in bring houses and all that so we had all this work more than we could do um, and I was a functional alcoholic addict for much of that time, supposedly functional. Like I could work if I had opioid narcotics to put in my body to get out of bed in the morning. That was functional. Um, and so um, finally, I, I met my wife now, Jill, and uh, fell in love with her. And, and she was like um, a godsend and my angel. And I had all these women living in my house. It was a very dysfunctional situation for my children. And Jill ran those women out of there and like threw their clothes out in the woods. And basically she fought. And um, we prayed this prayer one night in a hotel room in Tampa. uh, And I said, God, whatever you have to do to stop me, please do that. And so the next day, God sent angels in green suits with handcuffs and answered my prayer Mm. um, I could have went to prison for 10 years and and the judge gave me mercy gave me like a year in the county jail which I was a gift that was that was a celebration and it was just enough time and that's where Jesus came to me again and just said you know I love you and your calling is not revocable and um you're my beloved and so and I'll shut up right here but so I got out of jail and I committed to the Lord and I started reading scripture, going to AA and jail, doing all that. I'm going to go back to that little church where I grew up. And the day I get out, no matter what happens, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to go to a meeting. And so I did that. And um, the pastor there, Pastor Dan Jones, who became my spiritual father and mentor, he said, well, Michael, I'm glad that Jesus has saved your soul, but AA will save your ass. 
<laughs> so, I want, so I want you to meet me at the noon meeting tomorrow. And just all these little things, the way God worked everything. So like, here's a, here's a pastor who didn't spiritualize the BS. Like he wasn't going to live me, let me live in this pink cloud Jesus thing, which I'm not saying that's not real and that Jesus doesn't cure and heal people every day. But for somebody like me, I need to program like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery. So he sat beside me and we, you know, he showed me how to do life sober and work the steps. Mm. And so I've been doing that ever since for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Man, there's so much in the, in that story. Um, and thinking about that prayer that y'all prayed, like it was a sun stand, a sun, a sun stand, stand still prayer. And yeah. What God sent is not what people would necessarily expect to be the answer to a prayer to be punishment. Um, um, but at this at this time, how many years ago? I mean, how many years down the train are we from? However many years we're from that moment. Um, you know, people see today, they don't realize what it what has gone, what has happened along the way to get there today. And and. And you, you sharing the depth of that is is super important. That process again, when you left jail, think or while you were in, things weren't working out great. It wasn't like you went in and all of a sudden things were great, and then when you got out, things were already rosy again. It was still that that struggle along the way, and that's just kind of one of those things we try to always have to remind ourselves when we see somebody who is accelerating or excelling or successful in something that we feel like we're pulled or drawn to that same thing. You've got to know how long it's taken them to get to that level. Um, and yeah. it's like, you have books. You're an author. I'm, I'm looking at them right now. I'm going to pull them up really quick. <laughs> so, yeah, so you, you know, I, I see these, you know, I see the books that you've written and I don't at all know that whole story. So I think of all of that, that life experience that you have, is a part of that DNA of what you are today. So share with us a little bit about the fresh expression piece. Um, me being in it, I've kind of been in it long enough to know where it's second nature to me, but just yeah. but for the folks who are listening, who really don't know what fresh expressions of church are and how you're kind of a, a leader in that area. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And everything that I've just shared is totally integrated um, with, like that's what shapes my passion and my drive for that. And I realized in the beginning, I probably sounded negative when I was talking about not fitting in with clergy, but we talk about in fresh expressions, actually the pioneer gift. And um, it was Johnny Baker who was the first to say this is the gift of not fitting in. Um, and so it's just a common kind of pioneer trait, a lot like with you, Jacob. So I, was, I wasn't trying to be negative and like say, you know, pastors are, um, but my my passion and calling, I don't see like my guaranteed appointment is not from an institution. Frankly, I don't even know if the denomination that I love and serve is going to be here a lot longer. Um, my my ordination and calling probably happened in that little church when I was a kid, actually. And I can remember some significant memories around what God was like kind of affirming that. But so I think where some people are, they're focused on taking care of what is and sustaining the, the, the congregations and kind of preserving the, the traditional institutional church. That's never been my focus. Um, it's always because my mind is on 
those people that are out there and their life is like a living hell and it's not even on their radar anywhere throughout their week that, oh, maybe I should just go try church this Sunday. That looks awesome. Yeah. It's just not even. So Fresh Expressions is about we have to find ways to, to first of all, embody Christ in the daily rhythms of people's lives and to form Christian community with people where they are. And the movement started in the United Kingdom. It's a, it's a movement. It's not an initiative or it's not a, you know, some uh, institutional uh, strategy to save the church or whatever. Um, and they just started noticing in the UK, which is, you know, years, decades ahead of us in the decline of the church in the United States, uh, that, Yes, the churches were dying, they're empty, but then this new kind of thing was rising up where like normal people were finding ways to form Christian community and, you know, pubs and taverns and, uh, you know, parks and stuff. So they started trying to learn from that and, and to harness some of those learnings. And uh, in 2004, they produced the Mission Shaped Church Report uh, and they took the language of the Anglican Declaration of Assent to proclaim the gospel afresh in every generation and call that fresh expressions of church. So it's it's really simple. It sounds complicated, but it's just forms of church with people that don't go to church. So um, I, I started doing that back at St. Mark's when I was just, you know, getting my feet in ministry and learning what it was to be a, a pastor. Uh, we started like a worship service for people in recovery, CPR. And I said, here's all these people that come to our church every week is Christ powered recovery. They don't come on Sunday. What if we actually created church for them that they would like to come to with spiritual practices they would be comfortable with? So yeah. we started having like a hundred people come to that and a church that had like 30 people on Sunday. So I was like, oh, this works. And then some of those people started to kind of trickle back into the traditional church. So then I did that at Lockaloosa in a barbecue joint. We started a church in Diane's Diner because the church had 12 people in it on Sundays. Then when I got to Wildwood, we started doing that. So it's um, the movement and the the language and all that. I had no idea about any of that stuff when I was doing it. We're, we're just trying to figure out what the Holy Spirit was doing, join into that and like out of necessity, get with people and and talk about Christ and share our faith and form Christian community. So when I learned about the movement and what it was, and it gave language and process and theology and like, no, you're not alone. There's thousands of people doing this all over the world and they're a little crazy. We're a little crazy, but it's a way of being church and it's legitimate. In fact, it's scriptural. It's maybe one of the, the actual biblical um, way, honestly, of being church is what Jesus did is what those first disciples did. So. But yeah, that's just a little overview of the the movement. Yeah, it's it's something that um, I've been involved with. I don't know how long now because COVID has kind of thrown off the entire timeline of life. I don't even know where we're at. Right, but it we're feels like it's, it feels like it's been my whole life because I've talked about this before. Like in church planning, it's very similar. There's a lot of the same traits and DNA in it. Um, but in like, but like you, one of the things you just said kind of early on there was that pioneers have the gift of not fitting in. And so that's one thing that regardless of whatever industry or um, what you feel called to do, if you feel like you're if you're a a square peg trying to fit in a circle hole in your career or um, wherever you find yourself, that maybe. Maybe you're trying to force yourself into something you weren't 
created for. Um, and that that is actually a, is a gift. And I think I've, I think that's a totally different ways to, to think things because we come from an industrial society where we're supposed to fit into the machine. That if right. you don't fit into the machine somewhere, there's got to be a cog somewhere in the machine where you fit. Um, and I think what we're starting to figure out, especially in this digital space and landscape, which I'm going to ask you a question about that in a few minutes. Um, there are so many opportunities to be a pioneer and whatever it is you do to go do that next thing. You just got to take that step to go do it. So in your fresh expressions or in these alternative types of forms of church, do you have maybe a story that just kind of an unbelievable transition for somebody or connection for somebody who's been a part of one of those that uh, kind of stands out in your mind? Yeah. Um, one, one of my favorite is of uh, just Denise. Um, just her, her authenticity and like she came, started coming to burritos and Bibles was her first fresh expression. She starts connecting with us and she would just like say these honest gut level, like, wait a minute. So are we saying Jesus is God? That kind of stuff. Right. So to watch her, so I was there the first time she ever prayed in her life out loud in front of people. It was probably one of the best prayers I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was just real and honest, like I'm talking to you right now. She was talking to God. And then within a year of that, for her to start her own church. Okay, so she started Church 3.1. It's a runner's church. They run a 5K. She uses her um, Facebook and all that. And, and she already has this group of runners. They go and do these mud runs and marathons and all this crazy run stuff. So she already has community and she already has friendships and stuff. Simple stuff. Like, I'm going to get my friends. We're going to run a 5K together. But before we start, we're going to pray. And then I, I, there was this moment. I got Sometimes I get Holy Spirit chill bumps over me. And um, I don't know if you get those. But mm. she's sitting there. She's got her phone. This She's just, like, totally new to the Christian faith, okay? And she's reading off some verses of Scripture. And she reads those. And she says a couple words. And she says, so what do y'all think about that? And then people just start talking about like, she's pastoring a church. She's preaching in her own way, in her own language, with her own people. And I just had this vision of like, that's what Christians have been doing for 2000 years. Like we have this whole idea that it's got to happen in the building and the professionals got to stand up and tell us what the Bible means. But for 2000 years of our history, this simultaneous thing has been happening where it's just normal people are out there in whatever space they can inhabit. And they're saying, Hey, I think um, maybe Jesus is real. And what do y'all think about this? And it's that simple. And Jesus designed the church to be that simple. So then people are like, well, I think that's a dumb story. That's why, you know, I'm hung up on Christianity. I don't think that could be true. And they're like, yeah, that is kind of a story. And they're just being honest about it. So you don't have to come in and the, the BS levels very low. Like, yeah. Just wherever you are. So she just exemplifies for me. We we have this idea, well, somebody becomes a Christian, now we got some to seminary and they have to be indoctrinated in a particular theological stream and they have to do all this. Now, if you release somebody in their passion and they're they're plugged into Jesus, and so we don't just unleash our pioneers and they're like willy-nilly, like we talk to them, we have great communication where we we check on them how goes it with your soul everything going okay in your life so there's all of that but 
that's really the the important part of it is the relationship and caring for one another and then just kind of unleashing somebody. So I think anybody could do that. If you if you have a passion, a hobby, you like to hang out in some particular space, that can become church. And if if we don't figure out how to do that, we're just going to continue in kind of how the church has been for the last 50 years, which is massive decline. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's an awesome story. What I kept thinking of was Lydia from Thyatira. I kept thinking of that's what that's just when I just I kept thinking of just kind of that scene. Um, and just the storytelling, how important storytelling has been to our faith. What are you feeling is is kind of a are you feeling a a pull right now to something? Is there something like a big picture thing that you see or maybe a a big dream, big vision call that you feel right now? Or if not, what are you feeling? Uh, what, what really kind of gets you going right now? Yeah. Um, that there is a, a, a little seed of a dream that God's placed in my heart and it, it's really about seminary and uh, higher education. And I, um, people used to like one of my mentors, he's been mentoring me for, oh, 11, 12 years now, Walter Edwards. Um, I told him way back then, I said, I, I, I think I want to be a seminary professor actually. And he was like, and you know, I was just some train wreck street kid that he was trying to turn into a Christian, right? And I, I'm still a Christian in the making. Um, and he said, well, what would you teach? And I remember just my instinctual reply was, well, what I would teach is not in the seminary yet. <laughs> and, and I've said that my whole life, right? And the other part of my, sal- my salvation, I, I just can't emphasize this enough, especially for those who might be listening and you feel like maybe you have um, a criminal record or a track record of you know, failure or whatever, or you don't feel like you're the smartest person in the room or the sharpest knife in the drawer or whatever. Um, I dropped out in the ninth grade and basically educated myself through Dungeons and Dragons. And I just had an education in um, imagination. Like that whole time, I, I didn't stop reading books and learning. It just, I didn't have to learn what the school was telling me I need to learn. I just chose what I want to learn. So I, I always have read and even written. I have this dream of like writing books and stuff. And um, in, in the rooms of higher education, I kind of think I've found like where the Holy Spirit ultimately, where I feel really fulfilled and I mean, I've, I've got every degree that I possibly can. I'm thinking about getting more just because I love to learn. I love the, the format. I love everything about it. And there'll be an announcement coming out formally about this soon, about um, the United uh, Theological Seminary Fresh Expressions House of Studies, which I'm going to be the director of that. And um, I think that that's part of what what's I see a lot of guys and gals that try to reenter society. And the, the track record is abysmal for uh, recidivism. And I think the one thing that kind of kept me um, moving in a positive direction where it's so easy to go back is education and going and getting my associate's degree and my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. That just was really formational, foundational. It's not just about knowledge, but I found mentors, you know, 
people that I spent hours with outside of the classroom, just like, why did you say this? And what do you think about this? And how do I do that? I was that annoying student doing all that. So um, I think in order for the church to truly grow and thrive in the coming um, mission field where we find ourselves, there's going to have to be a massive change at the seminary level. Because at the seminary level, it's still an extractional idea. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Like, um, so we got this person who's doing awesome stuff in their mission field. Let's say, you know, Jacob. And they're amazing pioneer and they're doing credible work on the front line. So then we take that person and we put them in a seminary and we take them away from their mission field. Usually nowadays you can kind of still stay in your mission field and still go to seminary. Uh, but they get, you know, taken through this process. Their faith is dismantled intellectually. And then we try to put it all back together and all of that. But then when they come out with a master divinity degree, right now they place where they were serving in the trenches of ministry can't afford them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> now they're the seminary educated. So now we got to send them to a place where da da da. So that's extractional. You're taking somebody like out of their context where they could probably lead thousands of people to Christ and to take them into our system. And then you never really give them back because now you send them to the church or whatever that can pay their salary. So there's a fundamental problem with that. What if we started to see seminary like we see in Fresh Expressions as there's a way for us to actually learn from what people are doing in the trenches of frontline ministry and not try to say, hey, let us pull you out of that so we can come teach you what you need to know. But rather, we went out and found ways to join and support their work and for them for it to be a, a reverse mentoring. So, yeah, you need to understand this theology and history and church tradition and all that stuff. But at the same time, we need to understand what you're doing because yeah. you're a positive deviant and you're doing something that people in the same context as you aren't able to do. So mm. how do we learn from you? So there's a mutuality there. It took a a ninth grade dropout to, to figure that out. Um, and now you are a professor at a seminary um, yeah. and you're continuing that that educational growth. and. You know, like you said, I think COVID is hitting a reset button in a lot of different types of educational platforms right now, and and Christian education is def is is one of those that's being impacted because there's going to be fewer and fewer of those churches that are going to be able to pay to compensate someone full time to pay back any of that debt. That numbers are going to continue to go down, so it's really going to revolutionize. Um, I, I think in a positive way. Maybe it's because I kind of think there's a lot of positive things that are coming from this, but it may open up the playing field back to people who eliminated themselves from contention for God's work in that way. Yes. Uh, feeling like, you know, I'm just I'm, people saying to themselves, you know, I'm just I'm not qualified to be that person. That's for somebody who's much more A, B, C and D than I am. Yeah. And, um, and I think the hard thing and this is why a lot of pastors tell me to go sit in a corner somewhere and shut up. Is because it means that um, pastors, you're going to have to get a real job. Like <laughs> <laughs> if the world is a gig economy and, and every normal, everyday Joe and Jane out there is trying to figure out how to provide for their family through multiple revenue streams. What makes clergy think? I don't think that's what Jesus meant by being set apart, that I'm going to be financially taken care of and have a tax break from the empire and get insurance. Right. 
I think that I like Paul. He's a tent maker. He's out on the road. He's plying his trade. He's bi or co-vocational, whatever you want to call that. And I think that would be a gift to the church. A lot of churches die because they can't sustain the salary of the pastor. Let's just be honest. And if we had a, a different model, and so there's a lot of expectations that come with that. We're going to pay you a full salary. I want you to be in the office, you know, five days a week and doing all this. Like if that's taken, and I don't know what a person would do in an office for five days a week as a pastor, but um, I try to not ever to go there as least as possible because I see the office as the community, right? And connecting right. with people as a pastoral job. Yeah. So that takes the load off the church. Like, oh, so it's a priesthood of all believers. We're all called and we all have gifts and we're all supposed to bring those to the table. And yes, we need somebody and it's biblical. We need a diaconos who organizes the, the servants of the church. We need a episcopos who kind of oversees the work. But that doesn't mean they need to have a full salary and uh, insurance and tax breaks from the empire. That's not what the, it was in the, in the Bible or for many part of Christian history. So that's something we really need to rethink. And, and um, you know, the more actually that we're able to be out in the community and connect with people at work, school, play, whatever, that just opens up this whole relational network. Whereas if you're a pastor and, and you're in a full-time appointment in a church and, and it's day in and day out, it's mostly concerned with the people that are already in the church. Yeah it's really hard to try to carve out time. We're doing 70 hours a week, just trying to keep up with all the church stuff. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, yeah. And that's, well, no, that's, it's welcomed. It was a, you, one of the books that really impacted me several years ago that I think kind of shifted my mind into this direction was a book called Bivo by Hugh Halter. Yeah. Um, and I think I'll post that in the links to folks too. Another for one to go check out if somebody, it's a really small book, but he talks about, that bivocational ministry, which at the time is a word I had never heard of. And yeah. then through research quickly found out that most pastors in the United States and the world are actually bivocational. Right. That the, even today, because most churches are small across the world. So you can't, you know, so it's kind of something that helps that kind of helped me see that. Yes, you, you may not have the A, B, C, and D compared to what we have elevated to what the pastor roles are. Uh, in what we've grown used to, but you, you are called in another way and you can connect to people in a special way that is impactful uh, for the kingdom work. So, Yeah. And I think another um, awesome resource, if you wanted to post would be Alan Hirsch's work with five Q and yep. the apostles, prophets, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, gift set. We really focus on that pastor poimane, you know, gift set, but there's this whole range. And when the church, you know, Ephesians 4 is about full coming to full maturity as the body of Christ. And that takes all five of those gifts operating together. All right, Michael, as we wrap up uh, today, and this has been awesome to you, by the way, um, if there's just something that you think people need to know or just something that's on your heart right now during this COVID season, if there's just one thing, if you're just sitting with somebody of just everything that's going on, what's something that people need to kind of think about? I think the most important thing for people to know right now in this time is that you are beloved of God. <laughs> and this is what keeps coming back. And I actually, this comes out of my own struggle and workaholism and Enneagram eightness. Like I'm an eight hole, uh, you know, 
Um, yeah, I figured that. <laughs> um, but but at the moment of Jesus' baptism, and he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit's there like a dove descending, and the Father speaks over him, "You are my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased." And then some versions of it, other people hear it. Some versions just Jesus. And the first time that I thought about, well, when God speaks that over Jesus, it's not that Jesus has done anything right. It's not his work. He hasn't healed the sick. He hasn't preached the, to the nation. He hasn't done any of that cool stuff. He hasn't raised anybody from the dead. But the father's just saying over him, I'm crazy about you. You're beloved. Um, and the first time that clicked for me, like, God speaks that over you, not because of your work, not because your church is all the numbers are up and to the right, or you're successful in your career, whatever that might be. God, you are God's beloved, um, just as you are right where you are before you do anything amazing before you. And for me, I had to get to that place where I believe that in my soul like that God really loves me and that I'm beloved to God before my, my work for God had to flow out of my walk with God and just fundamentally believing that. And for a long time I struggled with that. I was like, cause I'm, I was an alcoholic drug addict, dope dealing, you know, multiple felon. So I got to do all this good stuff to try to like cover up, make up for all the bad that I did and the damage that I caused. And I just had this moment of great, realization and, and the depth of my soul like nope that you're my beloved just how you are and i think in covid i have to keep reminding myself that like ah oh, we tried this and it failed and that sucks and i started this new thing and only two people showed up what a bummer and i had a community listening session and we knocked doors for three days and only 12 people showed up and if i if i let that bum me out and go look all this stuff i'm failing it and and that can really draw me down as a as an oriented work oriented enneagram eight person. So I have to just sit back and go. But I we are God's beloved, mm. and it's not about those things being massively successful. And any kind of success is built on the amount of failure, right? So, in in the midst of COVID, I think it's just important for us to leaders is just remember that our belovedness comes not from how great our online worship is or if we're able to uh, pivot and do some new thing, but it's really just centered in our identity in Christ. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a, it's a reminder we all need. That's, yeah, right. that's a good word, man. That, uh, that to remember that we are beloved. Yeah. I have to tattoo it on my arm just so I can make sure that I remember. There it. you go. Yeah. There you go. I don't somehow, somehow I made it out of the nineties. And military wow. without a tattoo. I don't know how. Well, I do know how. Dang. I was I was broke. So that's my <laughs> I had some great ideas of barbed wire tattoos. I've got to make up for it. So I gotta come up with some I gotta get a beloved. That's a good one to go with. You gotta come down tattoo parlor church. We'll fix you. I know. You we do, I do need to make I, I have requested for a field trip to go down to to, to South Florida to go um to go on a fresh expression tour to come kind of sit with you guys and talk shop. So maybe that'll happen. Cool. All right, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, man. Hey, thanks for coming on today. Where can uh, people find you online? 
Um, well, the, the primary place, kind of my real estate is michaeladambeck.com. It's just a place where I can put my blog and a lot of all these different things, but I'm all on Fresh Expressions US. Uh, you can contact me through there, Fresh Expressions Florida or United Seminary. And um, if you're feeling like for those that are pastoral or even exploring pastoral ministry and you're thinking, I think I want to be some kind of in leadership in the church, but maybe not the conventional, like, you know, I'm just going to take care of a, a McDonald's franchise kind of church. Um, think about United Theological Seminary and the Fresh Expressions House of Studies. What the focus there is to try to prepare people for the world that actually exists. And what missional tools do we need actually to faithfully engage this current um, pandemic and very different culture? Awesome. All right, man. Well, we'll check it out. Um, we'll have all those links when we, we make the post, all those things, man. Michael, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. All right. I'll see you. Okay. Man, I love that guy. You know, something I was thinking about when I was talking to him, I met him after I had read his books that were about ministry. So I had this preconceived idea about who Michael Beck was. And then I got to know him through phone calls, through Zoom calls, and during COVID season, um, air quote, attend his church, his living room church through Zoom. And I got to hear his story, and it changed it changed my perception of who Michael was as a person. And the great thing about this podcast, if this is the first time you've ever heard of him, and you go uh, to his website, michaeladambeck.com, and you decide to, to read his books and begin to follow him and connect with him, he's easily accessible. Now you know his backstory, and I hope you look at him with a different lens, because you have a backstory too. A lot of times we think that we're called to something else, something bigger. If you feel that way, I need you to know, yes, yes, you are called to something else and something bigger. If you feel that, go after it. Now, where we make a mistake, a lot of us make a mistake, is we then think that we have to adjust something to fit into a cookie-cut mold of what we have as a preconceived idea of what a person of faith is. I hope Michael's story reminds you that you, you have you has uniquely given you your backstory because only your story can connect to someone like you. So yes, pursue obedience to God, pursue glorifying God and all that we do, but do so knowing in the confidence that God has wired you to be you in that we glorify him in all that we do, but be you. Your, your vernacular, the cadence in which you speak, your personality, God has wired you to be you. So go after that. Again, go to michaeladambeck.com. Find out more about him. Pick up a couple of his books. Reach out to him online. Know that your story, know that your story matters. And that's what we believe here at Live 2540 at the Period Podcast. We believe that all of us are right there on the dock. So many people are right there ready to take that step, that leap of faith. And we want to be right there with you as you take it. So start taking those steps. You guys have a great week. Thank you all so much. See you.